this week, the Comics Guys continue to explain The Summers Family, Part 3. Yes, thank you, Ben. Uh, and this time, we're going to pick off up right where we left off with The Summers Family, just when we thought everything was resolved with Cable. Uh, Age of Apocalypse is coming along to screw everything up again. So, Darren, how does this start off? That's pretty much how, That pretty much describes it. There was about 20 minutes of peace and quiet in The Summers Family. Uh, you know, with the resolution of the whole Ascani storyline, and now we've explained who Cable is. Cable has left the uh, X Force and gotten his own solo series. So this is Marvel at the time, right? This is Marvel in 1995, um, and the X Men are keeping the company alive, right? The X Men and Spider Man uh, between them. The rest of the Marvel line is not selling well. Marvel is having financial problems, um, and everything is about. X-Men and Spider-Man. And at this point, the X-Men as a, you know, franchise are six comics coming out every month, right? There's the two X-Men, there's X-Factor, there's uh, X-Force, there's Excalibur, and there's Cable Solo, right? Um, And then there's four Spider-Mans, and, like, between those, that's what's paying the rent. And so uh, Bob Harris, who is the editor-in-chief of the entire X-Men line at this point, um, while simultaneously writing the Avengers, you know, in his spare time, um, is looking to do another big crossover event with the six X-Men titles, right? And so he proposes uh, a story that is actually based on a plot that he has already seen but has not aired yet for the X-Men cartoon show. And he has, you know, read the script and knows that the show is actually coming out, and the episode is called One Man's Worth. And it is basically a story in which time-traveling assassins from the future, in this case Bastion, uh, travel back in time and assassinate Professor X and change history. And Bob Harris says, that's a great plot. That's a really great pair of episodes. It's really two, it's a two-parter in the X-Men series. Well, the best ones. Yeah, definitely. I love the uh, old X-Men TV show. So, right. It was my first, because that's about when I was getting into comics. Right. So that episode hasn't come out yet, right? When they're actually, when, when they're doing this, but Harris knows about it and says, okay, you know, that, that would be what anybody else got some like good ideas. Could we do a thing like that where we could, like go back in time and, and kill professor X and do a whole new, you know, like alternate world. And so he's got six different writers, right? Like all working on, you know, the different X-Men titles and they get together over, you know, like a, like, like a a fall break basically and start plotting this out. And it's Scott Liddell and it's uh, Mark Wade and it's Fabian Nicheza. It's all the people who are doing X-Men stuff at the time. And they come up with a storyline that is like one man's worth, but much bigger. Right. Um, And one man's worth will actually come out as an episode. We'll get broadcast while this storyline is going on. So everybody will assume that actually one man's worth was a ripoff of age of apocalypse, except it's the other way around, right? Because the, the lead production time for a TV show is so much bigger, right? That the, uh, they, they had started work on the TV episode long before the comic came along, even though the comic came out first. Um, And in this premise, they say, okay, uh, David Holler, uh, Professor X's son is going to travel back in time and he's going to try to, uh, you know, he, he wants to kill Magneto in his youth, right? 
and you know stop uh, all of this you know terrible stuff from happening and of course screws it up and actually accidentally winds up killing professor x in the past before the x men have ever been founded and this creates an alternate universe uh in which uh uh there are you know the 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 world has been conquered by apocalypse because without professor x there uh to you know kind of uh, uh to, for for apocalypse to be concerned about he starts up his plans to take over the world early and there isn't anybody else in the marvel universe around yet right like thor hasn't you know don blake has not found his hammer tony stark hasn't become iron man the fantastic four haven't gone into space and so he basically succeeds and takes over the world and so humans are a you know persecuted minority most of them have fled to europe sizable chunks of the planet have been destroyed and apocalypse is the leader of a army of mutants that have controlled the world and the x-men are kind of like an underground group of mutants who are fighting apocalypse and also trying to save human lives despite the fact that you know everybody hates the the, the humans all hate them because they all they know about these guys is that they're mutants um, and so the entire line of X-Men goes away for, uh, I think it's six months, right? Um, and in their place, they publish a bunch of new comics. They publish six titles, you know, the six regular monthly titles, plus a bunch of like bookend titles that take place in this new universe, right? And so in this new universe, uh, Mr. Sinister is, of course, still obsessed with and interested in the Summer's bloodline uh, because, you know, he started looking into that in like the 19th century, right? That's the, he's well along in this when history gets changed. And so Mr. Sinister winds up going to work for Apocalypse and Sinister uh, basically takes the, you know, when, when uh, Scott and Alex are in the orphanage at the time, uh, that history has changed, right? They're little kids in the, in the orphanage. He takes them both in and raises them himself. And in doing so, they become, you know, like two of Apocalypse's kind of like chief, uh, you know, lieutenants, right? They're like, they're, they're, they're very important in his army. They're very, you know, kind of like key figures. And there's a whole kind of, you know, nature nurture question that's like studied throughout the, the, the entire AOA series, right? Because, um, Cyclops is still at heart basically a good person, despite the fact that he's been raised by Mr. Sinister as his dad, as part of Apocalypse's organization. He still is like too kind-hearted, you know, to actually participate in any of like the cruelty that they do, right? And so he is kind of like, you know, on the inside working uh, against Apocalypse. He, he, periodically, he goes in and like frees prisoners from their from their breeding pens and that sort of thing. Right. Whereas Alex is wholeheartedly evil in this setting. Right. Like he is just a shitty human being who gets off on hurting people, basically. Um, and the two of them have this very strong rivalry because Alex sees how much everybody, you know, likes Scott <laughs> more than him, right? And so he's constantly like scheming to, you know, like overthrow Scott and uh, and and replace him and show everybody and catch Scott doing one of these one of his good deeds, right? Which he's pretty sure will get Scott fired if not killed from, you know, like his important jobs. Mister Sinister. In his ongoing efforts to like create the perfect, uh, you know, like future mutant, the same things that he does back in our dimension, he is doing again, and he gets hold of a bunch of different 
people's uh, mutants DNA, one of them being Jean Grey's. And Jean Grey is, of course, a member of the X-Men at this time. Uh, she's never died. She never became Phoenix or anything. None of that part ever happened. The Phoenix Force never came to Earth. Um, but Jean Grey is part of, like, you know, the heroic X-Men, which at this point are led by, like, Magneto's in charge of the team, and, like, Quicksilver, as his son, is leading the X-Men, right? Um, and so Mr. Sinister secretly combines the DNA of uh, Scott and Jean himself in a lab and, like, starts and, and grows a clone, grows, grows a, you know, like a, a, a you know, a, a, an embryo uh, using both of their genetic material. And this character, he names uh, Nathan, named after himself, because Sinister's real name is Nathaniel Essex. And so Nathan uh, is basically Cable in this dimension, right? Because none of the Cable stuff happened in this world. But somehow Scott and Jean still have a child, and that child still has the incredible psychic potential that the, that baby Nate had, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so in this world, Nate is now like in his late teens. Cyclops frees him from the breeding pens, not knowing who he is, and sends him out into the world to you know kind of like survive on his own. And Nate, this new one, uh, this new person calling himself Nate, basically, uh, winds up falling in with a troop of uh, actors uh, who are traveling around the wastelands of North America. Um, and their, you know, their, their being actors is like a cover for their being like smugglers of humans, right? Like they're trying to get humans out of like the, you know, the dangerous lands. And this group is led by Forge um, and includes uh, the Toad and Sauron and a couple other people. Um, and Nate kind of like falls in with them. And so the series that replaces Cable in the line is the story of this guy who is now called X-Man. Um, Sinister uh, discovers, finds out that, that Nate is out there, right? Like, and starts manipulating him kind of like behind the scenes, basically tricks him into attacking uh, one of Apocalypse's facilities. And Apocalypse discovers that he exists and says, holy crap, that's a really powerful mutant. We should do something about that. And sends Domino after him to collect him and kind of like bring him in and force him to join Apocalypse's army. This turns, of course, into a whole big confrontation, of the straight up battle with, you know, Sinisters trying to manipulate both sides. Essex, uh, Sinister, kills Forge in front of Nate. And Forge has been this kind of like father figure for Nate. So Nate then kills... Essex kills Mr. Sinister and mind wipes Domino so that she can't tell Apocalypse what happened. And that's basically the story of like the issues of X-Men that are replacing Cable. It then goes, he then heads along to the climax where everything else has been going on, building up to this big confrontational climactic battle with Apocalypse. Um, and Nate shows up kind of alongside the X-Men of this world in this great final battle. Um, he meets Gene and Scott both in this final battle, and Gene figures out just you know by reading his mind basically that he is their child, even though Gene and Scott barely have any awareness of each other's existence at this point, right? Um, and they get into this big throwdown, you know, final fight, and Nate is fighting Holocaust, who is one of Apocalypse's main, you know, lieutenants, basically his main his main henchmen. 
and they're fighting over the Macron crystal from back in the very earliest days of you know of the new X-Men, right? Of the Claremont X-Men. And uh Nate actually at one point picks up like a the Macron crystal itself and stabs Holocaust in the chest with it. Holocaust trying to kill him. Holocaust is a character that could only exist in the nineties. Yes, absolutely. Fucking <laughs> crazy nineties character. Absolutely. So he stabs him with the McCran crystal and then they both disappear. Right? And then the rest of the story goes on without them and we don't know what happened to them. Right? That's the 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 Age of Apocalypse story comes to an end without these characters. Both of them have been kind of like removed from the story mysteriously. And of course, you know, first of all, Age of Apocalypse, smash it. Right? It probably delays the success of selling the Age of Apocalypse stuff, probably delays Marvel's X-Men, uh, Marvel's uh, bankruptcy for probably a year or so. Right? Like, that's, you know, so much cash actually comes in over this. Um, it is, you know, deemed at the time to be wildly collectible. That turned out to, you know, not really be the case, but, uh, you know, it's the collectors at the time kind of like loved it. And it was, you know, Everybody enjoyed it. Even I like this story, right? It's like so over the top goofy that you can't, you, it's just kind of charming to me, right? And it's so um, dark and weird unnecessarily, you know, that it's, a, that it's just a very strange set of stories. But at the end of it, of course, when like the, you know, the rest of the, the world has returned to normal and the, our heroes have all kind of like gone back to their ordinary lives, many characters from the Age of Apocalypse setting have now made their way to our universe, right? And so, like, you know, the evil version of the Beast has come over, and he's causing all kind of trouble for the X-Men. And the Sugar Man, who, like, you know, we didn't even know he existed in our universe, like, has turned up. He came back, too. And both Holocaust and Nate wind up in our universe and start kicking around. And Nate now gets a new series. He has taken the last name Gray now that he has met his mother, right, and knows that Jean Gray is his mother, and is just just cosmically powerful, uh, you know, telepath and telekinetic. Everybody says he's the most powerful mutant on the planet, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he gets his series called X-Man. And from the beginning, nobody knows what to do with this guy, right? Like, no writer has a good handle on what we should be doing with this character. Cable already exists, right? Like, there's already a Cable in our universe, and they kind of have a handle on him now. And now we've got another mysterious version of, like, the same guy who is, like, younger and handsomer and more 90s with his mullet and his whatever, you know, kind of thing. But nobody knows what his story really should be. So for the next few years, basically, uh, X-Man, Nate Gray, wanders around the Marvel Universe periodically bumping into people and having kind of short adventures with them, none of which actually kind of last or stick or resonate right like he teams up with spider-man for a bit even for you know one extended story and he just kind of you know walks the earth walks the earth bumping into people very early on he has a uh in a in an effort to kind of like reach out and contact his mother in this universe to see you know like what what she's like here and what could be done he instead accidentally creates, psychically creates a copy of, you guessed it, Madeline Pryor, who is now back, <laughs> right? As his kind of like mother figure psychic creation or whatever is like a different version yet again of Madeline Pryor because we could not leave well enough alone. 
right? Madeline Pryor was safely dead in the ground and not confusing anybody anymore. And here she is now back, apparently as the you know mother figure to to Nate. We couldn't leave well enough alone uh, at Nate Gray, like as a whole, like right. What a useless character. Exactly. Yes. But he's but it's enormous, right? Like I mean, they put an enormous amount of effort into doing this, and of course, right after this. You know, like when when X-Men is kind of like getting up and running as, you know, like yet another X-Men title is when Marvel goes into its bankruptcy, right? Like Bob Harris, who's the guy who kind of is responsible for this, has taken over as editor-in-chief, editor-in-chief just in time for like the walls to come down around him, right? And so it's during this stretch while Marvel is kind of like fighting through its bankruptcy and is basically, you know, just like printing books just to generate cash, of X-Men and Spider-Man, that's when the Onslaught storyline takes place so that they can move the all the Avengers characters out of house, right? As we've discussed, we want to go back to our history of Marvel. This is the stretch when that is happening, um, where, you know, Captain America and Iron Man and Thor and the Avengers, et cetera, are all being published by people other than Marvel, right? By a different studio, an out-of-house studio under the Marvel, uh, you know, kind of like umbrella, basically. So all of this is all happening at the same time. In fact, uh, Nate is actually tied into the Onslaught story, the creation of Onslaught, because he is the one... Uh, Xavier Onslaught in Xavier's head is spying on him at one point because he's the most powerful mutant on Earth. And Nate, in order to figure out who realizes that somebody's spying on him, and in order to figure out who it is, basically turns an attack back on Xavier that forces Onslaught to make his own physical body in order to protect himself. And that's what separates Onslaught from Xavier physically. Right, so he's kind of like a key fact, a key factor in that whole story, that whole ridiculous storyline. I did not realize he was even involved in that. Right, it's just well, once again, I mean, onslaught went across every title, and X Men had his own comic at that point, right? So it was, you know, he, he they, they needed to put like some portion of the story in his comic. So onslaught goes on. Marvel gets you know out of its bankruptcy eventually, and you know they they wind up undoing a bunch of that stuff. And X Men continues to kind of like putter along as about the fifth or sixth best selling X Men X Men franchise title. Right? It's never really that popular. It never really goes anywhere. Um, there's a brief stretch of stories that are kind of interesting where he becomes a singing celebrity. Right? It turns out that Nate has a beautiful singing voice. And also combined with his psychic powers means he starts to pick up a weird collection of like followers uh, who think he's like the Messiah or something. And he's, you know, performing while singing the guitar and like Central Park and has a whole bunch of hippies who are like have decided to follow him. Um, And then uh, the Purple Man comes along as like the bad guy in that storyline and like manipulates him into doing a bunch of terrible things. And his followers all have to kind of like turn on him and everything. In the end, uh, Nate defeats the Purple Man, uh, but has to mind wipe all of the people who followed him, all of the people who thought he was Messiah, to forget that he exists. That and so he like goes. Interesting uh, X Men story. It was actually not bad, right? Okay. During this stretch, also is like this, you know, like Madeline. He realizes who Madeline is. Uh, and you know, realizes that he accidentally created her with his psychic powers, so he lets her go away. Um, and then yet another version of Madeline shows up, except this one is from another dimension, where Madeline had been the survivor of all of the foolishness that had happened around Inferno and Phoenix and all of that stuff. 
Um, and she was an evil version of Madeline who had somehow come to our dimension and was manipulating him for a while. There were aliens involved in this too. It was really complicated and stupid. And frankly, I'm not going back to read them to, you know, just for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the end of all of that, when Norman Osborn is basically winds up in charge of like the Marvel universe for a stretch, right? When he's, when he's doing the dark Avengers and all that other stuff, he's got a dark X-Men team and Nate winds up getting recruited onto that team. Um, primarily because once again, because he's super powerful, he's a, you know, uh, uh, as a male Mary Sue character, right? Like a Barry Steve or whatever. Um, he's, he's before that's right. Right, yeah, but he's like so stupidly powerful that like Nate, uh, that Norman Osborn feels like he's got to keep an eye on him because you know I he's he's so powerful that only the Sentry could stop him if he were to turn on me, kind of thing. Um, which of course he does turn on him uh, when he realizes that the Dark Avengers are basically bad guys, that uh, the Dark X Men are basically bad guys. It takes him you know entirely too long to figure that out. Um, X Men's character. Yes. Oh, completely. He's he's very slow on the uptake as a character. Uh, I read that Dark X Men comic. He's like, he's got issues. He's kind of dim. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, he winds up kind of turning on them, and they beat him. Right, like between them. And the last we see of him in the Dark X Men storyline is he's been beaten by Sentry and the assorted other Dark X Men, and they turn him over to Dark Beast basically to like torture and experiment on, right? And then the Dark X-Men storyline goes completely elsewhere and completely forgets kind of that they've left, you know, uh, poor Nate in Dark Beast's clutches and never really like explained or paid off anything that happened to him. Um, That finally gets settled in the pages of X-Men. The X-Men series gets canceled. Um, And in the pages of X-Men, we uh, have finally have him freed from Dark Beast. At that point, he's, his powers have been super chopped back, right? He is now, uh, you know, because of the torturing and the experimenting and all this other stuff, now he's just pretty good at telekinesis and his telepathy has gone away entirely. Right. Um, he is rescued by the X-Men who take him to San Francisco. He is part of the Utopia stories when the X-Men are, you know, like on a, living on an island. Uh, during this stretch, he's kind of like a bit part in a bunch of the other X-Men storylines that go on for a bit. He starts a relationship with Danny Moonstar, um, which, uh, as far as I know, or was up until his last appearance, was still going on. Um, and then in 2019... They Marvel decided to do kind of a flashback to do a, a a tribute series back to Age of Apocalypse, in which they would do the same kind of thing that they did, where they basically you know uh, replace all the comics in their line for a few months with the X Men of a different universe, right? And in this case, this was now called the Age of X Men, in which. Uh, we discover that it's a perfect, it's a happy paradise universe, right? Like everybody's happy. Everybody's getting along. There's no crime. There's no hatred, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out that this is an artificial world that Nate has created out of his returning super cosmic psychic powers uh, and brought all of his friends to come live with him in this happy, peaceful paradise, which of course, as soon as, you know, like the story starts, things start to go wrong in the paradise. People are realizing that this isn't the real world, like bad things are starting to happen that Nate can't control, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and so the, you know, over the course of like a four month stretch through the entire line, the assembled X-Men all kind of like figure out what's going on. Magneto is the one who finally actually like makes it to Nate and confronts him at the end with the realization that he's the one who did this. Um, and in the end, he decides to let everybody return back to their, to, to their original universe. Um, but then he's going to stay and it's suggested that like a version of Magneto stays in his happy paradise world with him. And we've never gone back to that. As far as I know, Nate is currently still in that universe. If he has turned up anywhere else since then, I've missed it. And I was doing some searching online to track down if he had turned up anywhere. And it doesn't really seem like he has in the last two or three years. Yeah, I stopped. Re I came back to X-Men right after that, and I haven't seen him in anything. Like, I kept thinking he was going to show up in X of Swords because it was such a weird. It just felt like a like an event where they would shove him in there. But... Where he could fit. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I can see that. I suppose. Awesome, weird power level thing that. They could give him the X-Man sword or something. Right. Um, and, you know, have him show up, but he didn't, as far as I remember. Yeah, I haven't read all of that, but I read some of it. And, yeah, I could see how you would fit him in there if you wanted to. I don't think there's, like, a big call for him to come back anywhere, right? I mean, he needed to be, you know, they used him as kind of the plot device for Age of X-Man precisely because he was, you know, like, the main thing, you know, probably the number one character who came out of Age of Apocalypse. Right? right, so if you're going to do a tribute, you kind of had to have him in it. After that, I don't think anybody's exactly like crying to have him come back again. So, yep. certainly not me. Yeah. <sighs> um, so anyway, so that's carried him all the way through to basically today. But now let's go back to uh, Age of Apocalypse, right? And let's go to the 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 the, the post Age of Apocalypse for everybody else, and let's talk about the rest of their line. Um. So Scott and Gene in '98 decide that they're going to after you know the the age of apocalypse is over and onslaught is over etc they decide they're going to retire and they kind of do for several years they're only barely in stories right and mm -hmm. then there is an entire extended plot um that is apocalypse is has now decided has now figured out the, the, something called the 12 and the 12 are apparently the most important mutants uh, who are going to like affect the future of the entire race, et cetera, et cetera, blarty blar. Once again, like this is what, you know, like, like Apocalypse wants to control these guys because they will be the fittest of the fit and they will lead the next generation of mutants and he'll lead them, therefore, et cetera. And Scott and Gene are both in the 12, or both among the 12 that are in there. And so Apocalypse captures them out of their retirement. And also, incidentally, Nate, who I, you know, we forgot to like mention as one of the things that he did while he was bouncing around, uh, you know, bouncing off of other characters. Um, in this story, we finally learn, like, there's an entire extended uh, discussion and kind of, you know, flashbacks and stuff about the story of Mister Sinister and Apocalypse and how they've been manipulating the entire Summers line for like 200 years at this point. Right. And so, like, we learn the names of a whole bunch of Scott's ancestors, you know, and uh, like Mr. Sinister's story of like how he's messing with them in the 19th century and all of this other stuff kind of like comes out. Um, and we learn the entire story of the living monolith. If you want to go back to the first episode of this, the guy who uh, his powers were uh, being limited by the existence of Alex in Alex's very first appearance. Right, like that story finally gets explained forty years later or thirty-five years later. Um, in that uh, 
using Summer's DNA, using Alex's DNA, Mr. Sinister, like had given the, the reason Living Monolith's powers work the way they do is because he was a patient of Mr. Sinister who was like also manipulating him. Right. So we finally get that whole story explained and filled out that it's all once again, it's all Mr. Sinister's fault. He's just been messing with people. Scott, at the end of the 12 series, the 12, you know, multi-part arc basically takes place. At the end of it, Scott is apparently dead. But in fact, uh, he is not actually dead. He's somewhere inside Apocalypse. Like Apocalypse has absorbed him inside himself. So we have a brief stretch of everybody mourning the death of Cyclops. And then uh, Gene and Cable discover he's still alive and go through... uh, you know, like a great deal of effort to basically to find Apocalypse and basically tear Scott out of him. This works, but the Scott that comes out is now much kind of like darker and much angrier and much more, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, unforgiving and uncompromising in his like ways that he's going to deal with, like, you know, how uh, mutants deal with regular humans, right? And so the new version of Scott that's out there is a much kind of like, you know, harder guy. And he and Gene immediately begin to have relationship problems that are, you know, they return to the X-Men, they're out of retirement, but that once again, they're not getting along anymore, right? And it's during this stretch that uh, Emma, who is now hanging with the X-Men on a regular basis as part of her kind of, you know, face turn, becomes Scott's therapist, quote unquote, which, you know, is exactly as good an idea as that sounds. Uh, And while she is helping him kind of like recover from the stuff that he went through with Apocalypse when everybody thought he was dead, the two of them start to have a telepathic affair. And this is now, we are now in the Morrison New X-Men stories, right? Like it's Morrison who really kind of like puts this front and center in the stories, the idea that like Scott and Emma are having an affair, basically. Um, in this same set of stories, in that run of New X-Men that Morrison is uh, in charge of there, um, we, have, we get introduced to uh, John Sublime and Zorn as characters. And this is not the place to try to explain either of those two, but they're both super complicated. Um, but they are basically bad guys of the, uh, you know, of the Morrison run, and they kill Gene. Gene dies again. Scott uh, has, you know, kind of like a brief period of mourning that doesn't last very long because at that point he basically just kind of like throws himself physically into the affair, the relationship that he was having with Emma, uh, you know, kind of like makes it more, you know, more obvious, more plain and more direct. And everybody is kind of creeped out by that, right? Like, it's like, wow, your girlfriend just died. Uh, You know, Gene just died and you have recovered very quickly right into the arms of this woman who used to be a bad guy. Right. So both Cyclops and and Emma, uh, both Scott and Emma at this point now are kind of, uh, you know, the the X-Men don't trust them. Right. Is kind of like the storyline that goes on. So I guess this is good time to talk about it because I don't think we've talked about it. Are you uh, Camp Scott and Emma or Scott and Jean? I am so entertained by Emma. I mean, obviously, it's a terrible, terrible idea. Right. Right. I'm not by any stretch suggesting that she's good for him. But I am so entertained by Emma when Morrison or, frankly, Joss Whedon write them, write her, that I'm always in favor of her being in stories, right? So we might as well, they might as well be having an affair just because 
they're both terrible people and it's funny when you know when they're being monsters to each other right so oh, yeah i'm definitely a bigger fan of uh i don't really, i don't actually like jean gray all that much she's kind of always been kind of milk toast to me she's kind of dull when she's not being phoenix right it's yeah. you know the only time she's actually really interesting as a character is when she's phoenix so Cyclops and uh, Emma together, I feel, make themselves uh, worse in lots of ways, and then also better in some ways. So, I feel right. like they each other really well. Right. Okay, well, and it's, and it's an excuse that like ties Emma in, right? Because I love I love Emma bouncing off of everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. It's you know, Joss Whedon may have I may have a number of issues with him as a storyteller, but mm-hmm. Joss Whedon writing Emma and Kitty fighting is one of the funniest things in comics. So, Sasha uh, X-Men might be my single favorite. Um, run of X Men. It's certainly high on my list. I don't know about favorite, but it's certainly up there. Yeah, it was so sad when Warren Ellis took over, and it was like, oh, it's going to be more now astonishing X Men, but with uh, Warren Ellis tone, and it just did not work. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, but cool. So now it's two thousand four, two thousand five, and a new person, a new writer, a new creator, kind of like gets added into the X Men line. The new guy who comes to uh, Marvel in 2005 after finishing a long exclusive contract with DC is Ed Brubaker. And Ed Brubaker had written some Batman stuff and he'd written some Wildstorm stuff and, you know, had just kind of like developed a very strong name for himself as a writer. And it was a big coup for Marvel to sign him away from DC when his contract ended. And the first thing Brubaker does when he comes to uh, Marvel is to take over the new Captain America series, the volume five. He gets a new number one of Captain America. And in that story, the first thing he does is, you know, what you've known all along is completely wrong. And I'm going to make a, you know, huge twist reveal and everything. And in this case, of course, it's that Bucky is still alive. Right. That's a huge splash. That's a big thing, a big event in Marvel. It gets a lot of press. The story is really good. A whole bunch of people, myself included, had said all along, you can never bring Bucky back. I'll never buy it. I'll never accept it. It's too important that he's dead, etc. And Ed, Brubaker, Ed Brubaker proved we were wrong. Yep. Right? I came into this story absolutely convinced I was going to hate it, and he won me over. So, you know, he, that's the first thing he does at Marvel. Literally, the next thing he does at Marvel is now that, you know, like the, the everything you knew is wrong, uh, you know, thing worked for him so well. The next thing that he gets to do at Marvel is to write an X-Men limited series called Deadly Genesis, in which, once again, he's going to take a story that you thought you knew everything about and completely turn it upside down and reveal a whole bunch of new stuff. And so in this story... Uh, in this limited series, it's a six-issue series, uh, comes out in 2005. It was the year after Winter Soldier started. Um, we basically have a new character, a new villain appears out of nowhere. He's called Vulcan, and he's got super cosmic powers, and he just basically shows up and attacks the X-Men for no reason, and just is kicking the snot out of them for the first several issues. Right. And the X-Men can't even figure out who he is. Right. Like they don't know why this guy hates us so much. And the second the, the backup story in each of the first few issues tells the story of some other mutants you've never heard of and how their powers manifested, how they, you know, like basically tells their origins of these characters and how at the end of each of their stories, they are collected by a mysterious woman who is revealed eventually to be more uh, to be Mora. 
And this, the timing of all of this is like set up so that you can tell that this is Moira working on kind of like bringing in, you know, mutants for the events of Giant Size X-Men number one, right? Before the new X-Men are brought together. And so she has put this, you know, kind of like collection of, of mutants together. And the mutants that, you're, that we're introduced to are called Petra, Sway, um, uh, uh, what's his face? Um, Vulcan? Vulcan, but the, the one, uh, Darwin. I Darwin. couldn't remember his oh, name right. for a moment. Uh, Darwin and Vulcan, right? Those are the four that we meet over the course of them. And Vulcan, we get explained last, right? Yeah. Um, and so what we learn over as the story is revealed, basically Vulcan kind of, you know, front confronts the X-Men in front of Xavier and like issues four and five out of the six issue story are Vulcan telling his story, uh, you know, while the backstory is revealing, you know, like his origin, right? And so the story of, that we learn about Vulcan is that um, he is the son of Christopher and Kathleen Summers. Like Adam X, though we won't know the full Adam X story at this point, we haven't, you know, that not all of that has been revealed yet, but in that same situation that um, he was uh, uh, born in Shi'ar, right? That he was, that uh, Kathleen was pre- uh, Catherine was pregnant. Um, so unlike Adam X, who was born because Deken raped Kathleen, this is K- Chris and Kathleen's actual child, a third summer's boy, a third summer's son. And of course, when he is born, uh, you know, he's fully human. So of course, the Shi'ar make him a slave. They put him in the you know slave pits the same way that they did with Chris, right? Chris never finds out that this is that this has happened. So he is lives as a slave in Shi'ar space, you know, under Emperor Deken for most of it, you know, to, up till young adulthood, basically, um, and is sent to Earth before, uh, you know, uh, New X-Men, before Giant Size X-Men, um, as a slave for Devon Shikari, who is Eric the Red, who is like the Shi'ar agent on Earth, and is one of the main bad guys that the New X-Men face in their first few issues. Right, like Eric the Red is actually, you know, that that all leads into the introduction of Lalander, the first time that we saw the Shi'ar at all. Right, is Eric the Red was like the bad guy who was trying to kill her, and so he served as Shikari's slave on Earth. And over the course of like the story, we learn that he escaped from Shikari, who didn't really care. Right, like one more, you know, one one more slave that I'm missing. Whatever I've got, you know, I'm too busy trying to mind control Havoc and Polaris to actually, you know, go chase after him or whatever. He gets free, um, is clearly a powerful mutant, and is discovered by Moira, who brings him in to this new version of the, of Xavier's school that she's putting together with these other kids. And so when Krakoa first captures the X Men. At the beginning of Giant Size Number One, that's not the first team that was sent to rescue them, right? The story goes instead that uh, when the uh, X Men were captured, right, Scott came back and told Xavier, you know, like they've they've captured the rest of our team. They have all of the rest of the original X Men. Well, not Beast, but everybody else. Um, we have to go rescue them. The first team he puts together to do this is those four mutants that you've never heard of, right? And so Scott does not know that Vulcan is his brother. So that team gets sent to go rescue 
the the um, X Men, and Krakoa beats them. Right, Krakoa defeats all of them. Uh, Petra and Sway die uh, in the effort to uh, to free the original X Men. Um, Darwin seems to die, but what actually turns out to happen is that he like turns into an energy form and merges with Vulcan to keep the two of them alive. That's like his power kicking in. And then they kind of just lie in a cave, basically, with Krakoa thinking that they're dead. And then the new X-Men that we know come in as the new team to come in and rescue everybody. They're the ones who defeat Krakoa and send him off into space. With the still alive bodies with the still alive body of Vulcan and the energy form of Darwin still alive in a cave in the middle of the, of, of what is now like, you know, the asteroid orbiting the earth, right. That's floating around in space out there. And so when, uh, Wanda does her whole no more mutants thing, which we will, you know, we'll, we'll cover that uh, probably in the next episode, but when she does all that and the energy of the mutants, all of their powers basically is kind of like released into space. It wakes up Vulcan and uh, Darwin on Krakoa floating in space. And they come back, uh, you know, well, it's first, it's just Vulcan coming back. We don't know that Darwin's inside him until later on. Um, and Vulcan is understandably kind of pissed, <laughs> right? That like, you know, uh, he's, he's in space and the rest of the X-Men all got away. And, uh, you know, he, he comes back to, you know, confront the team of like, why didn't you save me? Why didn't you bring me back with the rest of the team? And Cyclops is like, I've never heard of you. I don't remember any of this happening. And they wind up confronting Xavier who says, well, yes, when, you know, uh, when when Scott came back and realized, you know, we realized that he had failed, he was so broken up over this that I figured it was better for to erase his memory of the first mission, so that if he would not suffer from like the idea of having, you know, like actually gotten these other X Men killed. The Diane. Professor Xavier is kind of an asshole, <laughs> right? It, it, it's just an astonishing. What you did? What you know? <laughs> I always felt like this is one of the storylines that made them decide to do that whole comic run of, I think it was like X-Men Legacy, where it's just Xavier going around saying he's sorry for all the fucked up shit he's done. For all the fucked up shit that he's done, yes, exactly. Yeah, oh, that's Legends, right? X-Men Legends. Wait, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't curse there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we've sworn before. Have we? Okay. Oh, all yeah. Right. All right, well, uh, fuck it then. Um... <laughs> But yes, uh, like, Legends is the one where it's like the, uh, you know, uncovering all the other mysteries and stuff, right? That the, all the other ways that the Xavier has screwed up, basically. Because yeah, I think it's Xavier, is it? And then it's, and then Wolverine has a run in Legacy, and then yep, Rogue. Right, yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah, Rogue was weird. Um, but yeah, that's, the, I think this is one of the moments. This is where... probably, in my opinion, this is the most nightmarish thing Xavier's ever done, right? I that's mean, just I absolutely. That. You know, yes, a bunch of people died on your watch as as leader, and I didn't think you could handle it, so I wiped your mind. And you just have not known that you were, you know, whether or not he thinks Scott is actually responsible for this, because I mean, he they were fighting a bad guy, like you know, Krakoa is the one who killed him, right? You know, it's not like it's not like Scott killed him. Scott just failed to keep him alive, right? And it's like, well, I didn't want you to have to live with that failure, so I erased your mind. Everybody now at least understands why Vulcan is so pissed. Right. Yeah. They still have this fight. They can't they still can't let, you know, Vulcan basically, you know, kill anybody. 
Um, and Rachel, at this point in the combat, discovers that Darwin is still alive inside Vulcan and psychically separates them, gets Darwin out of him, right? So actually two of them survived, um, which is kind of like the, oh, well, that's sort of a happy ending, I suppose. Um, but Darwin is uh, 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 Darwin decides to stay with the X-Men, but uh, Vulcan is still furious of all of this stuff. Um, and uh, in this fight, uh, we forgot to mention, Vulcan killed Banshee, which, you know, bummer. Yeah, he was kind of a big deal. Um, and he winds up, he doesn't want to join the X-Men. He's disgusted by all of this. He's disgusted that they're protecting Xavier, and he takes off back into space. Scott is so infuriated by the revelation of what Xavier has done that he kicks him out of the X-Men and takes over the team. And for an extended stretch of time, Xavier is not part of the X-Men because he's, you know, we have this whole kind of like shame situation. Meanwhile, Vulcan heads back to space to go kill Deccan, which is like, okay, I've got a mad on. I'm, you know, mad at somebody. I'm clearly going to, you know, I got to take it out on somebody. Well, Deccan's kind of an asshole. I'm going to do that. Um, and on the way, he learns that uh, he's too late. Deccan's already gone, and Lelandra's in charge of the Shi'ar. Um, and uh, he winds up uh, attacking Lelandra and the Imperial Guard. Uh, this leads to, I mean, Vulcan is so powerful that he like clobbers almost all of the Imperial Guard and winds up going head-to-head with Gladiator. And if you're unfamiliar with Gladiator, Gladiator, Gladiator is basically the Superman of the Imperial Guard. He is, in fact, actually, because the Imperial Guard is based on the Legion, he's the version of Superboy slash Monel that they have on their team. And that's kind of his power level. And the two of them have a just out, out, outright, you know, slobber knocker of a battle. And Gladi- Gladiator beats him and incidentally also knocks his eye out. Um, so Vulcan has a, you know, fake eye every, every story since then. Um, Vulcan is held in prison uh, for the Shi'ar for a while. And then in a later story, he escapes and starts up a romantic relationship with Deathbird, uh, who is a, a Shi'ar, you know, warrior who has spent some time being a villain on Earth and et cetera, has a long, complicated story. Um, and of course, inevitably, the X-Men and Starjammers wind up running into these guys again uh, the next time they're out in space. Vulcan winds up uh, trying to kill Xavier, but fails. And then he kills Corsair. And Havoc is there with the team. And of course, he won't have anybody, you know, killing his dad, basically, even though they're brothers. And so Havoc winds up joining the Starjammers. And the two, you know, the Starjammers wind up like kind of like fighting, uh, you know, Vulcan and his crew. There's a whole cosmic epic that kind of like spins out of this where the McCran species, the actual the actual alien McCran who built the McCran crystal, they've you know created it in the first place, they all come back. And there's a whole super cosmic epic that takes place. Then at the end of it, Vulcan is now the new emperor of the Shi'ar. Right? Lulandra has been kicked off the throne, and Vulcan is now the new the new boss. And that leads, the first thing he does as you know emperor of uh, of the shiar is declare war on the kree because you know why not right and so that leads to the war of kings epic arc in which the x-men star jammers and the inhumans are all on kind of like different sides of this battle between the kree and the inhumans because this is during that time where we're trying to make the uh inhumans the new x-men because exactly 
Yeah. Right. At this point, we don't own the, you know, Marvel does not own the rights to the to mutants, basically, and is trying to make the Inhumans a big deal. Um, in this, the War of Kings, like the big kind of like uh, climactic fight, uh, Vulcan and Black Bolt go head to head in yet another kind of like, you know, cosmic level matchup between two incredibly powerful characters. And they basically both disappear in the battle and nobody knows where they've gone and they're both believed to be dead. And Gladiator uh, winds up taking over the throne himself. Uh, and the war is basically kind of like put on hold. It's kind of complicated how it ended, but uh, you know, they, they, they stop killing each other. Um, and Vulcan, we don't see him for a while. When he comes back, we learn that he had been, he basically got knocked into another dimension in his fight with Black Bolt and other dimensional aliens like got him and like messed with him. Right. And his head is completely screwed up from all of the stuff that the uh, aliens put with him, but we don't know kind of like what the purpose of it was. And when he returns to earth, uh, after having kind of like been rescued in space, he is suddenly a much nicer and more reasonable guy. Right. And all of these people have come back to life, of course, because we're in the Krakoa era now and all of these people have been brought back to life. And, you know, uh, dad's not dead anymore. And Scott and Alex and dad and everybody have like the Summers clan has its own kind of like section of the island. And they totally welcome Vulcan to come live with them. Right. As like, oh, yes, here's our, you know, long lost brother kind of thing. Um, and there's no real kind of like explanation as to why Vulcan is now a nice guy. But over the course of these stories, we have learned that he really is not that nice a guy. Um, and he is still kind of like dealing with a lot of either alien brainwashing or, you know, PTSD related stuff. We're not really sure. He basically kind of like starts two major separate fights uh, by his temper snapping um, on Krakoa. And in the second one of them, he kills Xavier uh, by pretty much by accident, but not really. Because it's clear that he still, you know, considers he still, you know, thinks that Xavier's, uh, you know, his enemy, basically. Right. Um, of course, this doesn't stick either. They bring Xavier back to life. And uh, Vulcan, for the act of killing Xavier, is banished from Kokoa and sent back out into space. We're not going to talk about what specifically is literally happening in the comics right now, but there is a series that is going on right now this summer uh, when this episode is being recorded called X-Men Red. And uh, Vulcan is one of the major characters in that. So if you are interested in seeing where Vulcan's uh, storyline goes from this point on, now that I've caught you up on him, um, you probably will want to go pick up X-Men Red uh, currently on sale at your friendly local game store. Absolutely. And with that, I think it's a good place for us to uh, break. Um, and we'll I think so. We'll head, we're heading into the final stretch. Absolutely. We will finish up with uh, the... Uh, rest of the X-Men or rest of the Summers family next time. Absolutely. Uh, I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. Thanks for coming.